I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We have taken a long walk through Peter's first letter. This is actually the 18th time we've looked at this letter. And we've seen that Peter was writing really to us. To the people of God dispersed among the nations given these amazingly excellent promises and yet surrounded by a world that is broken, that's filled with temptations, that's filled with opposition. And in the midst of that, we're called to live according to Christ, to rejoice in the promises of Christ, to look forward to that which is coming in Christ. And now as we come to the close of this letter, he leaves us with an important exhortation that really sums it all up and and reminds us what's really important in the midst of it all. So we're going to look together at uh, verses 6 through 11, but in order to see that in context, we'll just read the whole chapter. So starting at the beginning of 1 Peter 5, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen indeed. Beloved servants of God in Christ our King. We live in the midst of a world filled with struggle temptation, suffering, and perhaps above all else, a world filled with distraction. There are so many temptations every single day to get caught up in the difficulties of this world. Of course, sin always lurks, seeking to lead us astray. But so does the distraction of drudgery, as our day-to-day tasks lead us to despair. So does the distraction of suffering, which can blind us to the joy of God's gifts. So does the distraction of stimulation as news and media and social entertainment 
keep our focus downward on the passing things of this world. And really that's a big part of what the Apostle Peter is urging us to recognize in this final text of his letter. He wants us to see how abundant are the distractions that surround us and that even fill us. So that having seen those distractions, we, must, we might focus ourselves not on those passing away distractions, but upon God who does not pass away, upon God who holds us firm, upon God who always provides what we need. Throughout our time examining First Peter, we've seen that this world in its current fallen state is filled with temptations and trials that will afflict the people of God. We're surrounded by worldviews that oppose the worldview of the Bible. Vicious opposition from people who hate God and therefore hate us who serve God. The call of the flesh, which urges us to take up those sins that once enslaved us. These all can afflict God's people in the world. And so as the ambassadors of Christ in this world, we must be on guard against them all. But even as we're on guard against them, we need to beware the temptation to focus on them. To allow them to become a distraction that lets us lose sight of God. We mustn't allow the many distractions of this world, many of which are good. We mustn't allow the distractions of this world to blind us to our vision of God. And that is really the parting emphasis of this letter from 1 Peter. Our God calls us, His people, to put Him first in all things. And so that this morning is our theme. God calls His people to put Him first in all things. And that means, first of all, relying on God for His loving power. That's our first theme that we see in in verses 6 and 7. We're to be relying on God for His loving power. Notice at the start of our text that word, therefore. Kids, you remember what I've told you about the word, therefore, in the past. You're reading in the Bible, you come to that word, therefore, stop a minute. Look at what just came before, because what you're about to read rests on what you just read. Well, what we just read was that call... To demonstrate the selflessness of Christ, right? The office bearers, the leaders of the church are called to demonstrate the selflessness of Christ. But then we as God's people are to show Christ's selflessness in our humility. Because God resists the proud, but He delights in those who are humble. He delights in those who bring themselves down, who lower themselves before Him. And therefore, on that basis, the Apostle urges us, humble yourselves, but not in the abstract. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That phrase, doesn't it bring to mind how God delivered His people from, Israel, or from Egypt? How many times in that, that Exodus narrative don't we hear God say that He's going to stretch forth His mighty hand against Pharaoh and against all of Egypt? He's going to deliver His people with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He urges Pharaoh to, to bow himself under God's mighty hand. It becomes almost proverbial. How strong is the might of our God's hand? And so we hear time and again in the Psalms how God's people trust in His mighty hand. Psalm 98 says the Lord... Uh, 
Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Psalm 118 declares, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Time and again, God's people are called to celebrate the greatness of God's mighty hand by which he works deliverance for his people. And it's in the light of his mighty right hand the omnipotent power whereby He is able to turn all things for our good. It's under that hand that we are to humble ourselves. You see, He uses that phrase to remind us we can humble ourselves, we can make ourselves less because we don't have to deliver ourselves. He's powerful to do that. We don't have to provide for ourselves. He's entirely able to do that. We don't have to worry about the future. The future exists in His hand. We can humble ourselves because we know we're humbling ourselves under the hand of God. And yet so many refuse. Certainly that sin of refusing to humble himself under God, of, of embracing pride instead of humility. Certainly that lay at the heart of Satan's sin. It lay at the heart of Pharaoh's sin. Or think of, think of the many characters that we find in the Old Testament where pride was their downfall. Think of Jezebel who not only refused to serve God but even killed those who did serve him. Think of Saul. Saul who started out so well but in his pride he insisted on doing his will rather than the will of God and he refused to humble himself before God. Peter himself understood such pride. On the night Jesus was betrayed he proudly stood up and said they all might turn aside but not me Lord. And that very night three times he denied knowing the Lord. Pride. The refusal to humble oneself before God. Why is that such a popular sin? Folks, it's such a popular sin because humbling ourselves before God isn't just about God, it's about us. It's not only about admitting that He is the true God and that He is sufficient, it's about admitting that we are not sufficient, that we're not enough, that we're not able to provide for ourselves, to, to plan out our future, to uphold ourselves. We're not. And we hate admitting that. See, we can't humble ourselves before God. We can't acknowledge His greatness until we get off His throne. But Peter assures us if we will simply humble ourselves before God, He will exalt us. See, He's the only one who's able to. We can try our best to exalt ourselves, but we'll always fail because there will always be someone greater. There will always be some part of the plan that we didn't think through. There will always be some circumstance that we could not foresee. And there will always be some sin that brings us low. Only God can truly exalt us. Only God can lift us up to where we long to be. And He will, if we humble ourselves before Him, He will exalt us in due time. You know, it's interesting, that phrase that's rendered in due time in the Greek is really quite vague. Is it speaking about in due time in the midst of our life or is it speaking about something eternal? And the answer is yes. Because, see, we don't understand what God's plan is yet. He... He doesn't show us the whole map of the trip that we're taking. He just shows us, you know, maybe up to the next exit or the next rest stop. 
so that we'll learn to trust not in ourselves, not in our navigational abilities, but in Him. And so, yeah, we humble ourselves before God. He might immediately exalt us. He might immediately give us victory over whatever was bringing us low. Or He might not. He might allow us to to be humbled even further than we thought was possible. But we know that in the end, He will exalt us. In the end, as we'll see in the last section of this text, we will share in the, the glory of Christ. And so regardless of how He deals with the situation through which we're walking right now, we know that ultimately we will sit with Christ And we will reign over all the creation in utter perfection and holiness. That's coming. We can guarantee it. But today we must humble ourselves before God. Today we must acknowledge that He, He is the one whom we serve. He is the one whom we trust. And so we can set all our needs before Him with confidence. Notice how exhaustive that is. Not just your physical needs for your work and your health and your strength, but also your emotional needs for your anxiety or depression or stress. And also your interpersonal needs for those disagreements and disputes and the offense that rises up within you. And also your spiritual needs for the doubts and the fears and the temptations that you face. All of the cares that enter into your life, entrust unto the Lord. Cast that care upon Him. How do we do that? Well, tell him what they are. Not that he doesn't understand what your, what your cares are, what your concerns are, but admit them to him. Acknowledge before him what fears lay upon your heart, what burdens are weighing you down, what things you're struggling with. And then having laid them before his throne, leave them there. Stop worrying about them. Drop it all at his doorstep and walk away. Because you see, ultimately, worry is idolatry. When we worry, we're refusing to leave it all before Christ's throne. We're we're insisting that we have to do something, that we have to intervene, that we have a role here. We don't. We have to leave God do what God will do. And we simply have to put first the kingdom of God and His commandments. Do what God calls us to do and and leave the concerns, the cares, the worries with Him. He will take care of them. We just have to keep our eyes on God. We have to keep focused on Him. Now that's easier said than done. But that's our calling, to keep our eyes on Him, to keep focused on Him, to keep our heart on the Lord. Well now, Peter turns us away from our troubles and asks us to consider the troubler. Because amidst all the cares of this life, Satan is not absent. And therefore, we must pay attention to him as well, learning to resist the devil with confident perseverance. That's our second point, that we're to resist the devil with confident perseverance. But the first step isn't resisting the devil. The first step is seeing him. See, we live in a world where we want to attribute, in in our culture, in our age, we want to attribute everything to some physical cause. It was my parents' fault. It was the fault of this disease. It was the fault of my culture or my environment. And while all of those things can play a role in the cares and troubles that, that that we face in this world, 
Satan is not inactive in the midst of it. In fact, he seeks to orchestrate all of that stuff in order to bring God's people low, to lead astray, if possible, even those who serve God. And when that's not possible, because those who are gods cannot be led astray, ultimately, well, he'll do his best to at least distract us so that we will be unprofitable for the kingdom of God. So Peter commands us, be sober, be vigilant. To be sober, that has that idea of of self-control. We're called to be in control of how we act, how we think, how we feel. We're not to to blow about with every impulse that comes, comes against us. Instead, we're to be vigilant, to be awake, to be alert. The Lord wants us to be aware of the environment around us, aware of what what we're facing, what we're dealing with, and its true nature. These attitudes are important because Satan, our chief enemy, is a determined predator. Peter calls him your adversary. That's That's a courtroom word in the Greek. It refers to the person who is your opponent in court. We have to regard Satan in that way. He's the one who's always looking for the opening, always looking to twist your words, always looking to get the advantage. He calls him the devil, diabolos, which means the slanderer. He's doing everything he can to drag your name through the mud. Not that he can get God to turn against you. He can't. But he can get you to turn against you. He can get you to doubt whether God could ever love the likes of you, whether God could, could truly have called someone who's done the things you've done. He's an evil opponent, and if we're not aware, if we're not sober and vigilant, he will devour us. He will bring us low and make us utterly and completely unfruitful to the kingdom of God. He will make us a physical, emotional, and spiritual wreck. So we must be watchful. We must be alert for his schemes and traps. We must be self-controlled enough to discern his schemes. That's crucial if we would not be consumed by this one who is as a roaring lion. But if we can see the devil coming, if we can see the schemes that he sets before us, then brothers and sisters, we can resist him. Notice that. That's an active term. If you're not paying any attention to the devil, you're not, you're not resisting him, you're his prey. You know, you ever, you ever watch a farm cat? I'm, I've never been a big fan of cats, but if you live out in the country, you have them around. And one thing I have grown to appreciate about cats is they are efficient at removing varmints. Uh, little birds, mice, even small squirrels. And what always does those little critters in is when they stop paying attention. The bird swoops a little bit too low and doesn't pay attention to the cat that's sitting there. The mouse is so focused on finding a few seeds that he doesn't notice that little pile of fur sitting over in the corner. And immediately, they're gone. We must be aware But if we're aware, we can resist. If we're aware, we can take evasive action. Not by our physical strength, not by our intellect. We resist Satan's spiritual warfare by our spiritual strength, being steadfast in the faith. Because our battle ultimately isn't against people. Our battle ultimately isn't against politics. Our battle ultimately is with the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. 
And so we must fight with spiritual weapons. The promises of God that we take up as a shield. The knowledge of God's work for us, protecting us like armor plates. The sure hope of coming glory, urging us ever onward. And above all else, we must be armed with confidence in Christ's victory. The victory he won over Satan for us. The victory that he secured by rising from the dead. The victory that he has proclaimed with his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. As long as we are trusting in Christ, building ourselves up in the faith that we find in Scripture, Satan has no power over us. And we can withstand any attack that he levels against us. Not to say it's always going to be easy. But if we're resting in Christ, if we're building ourselves up in the faith, if we're praying consistently for the strength that God gives, there is no trap, there is no scheme, there is no plot of Satan that can succeed. And we're not alone in the fight. It's easy to be discouraged if you think you're alone. But the apostle reminds us that we're to resist the devil steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The temptations of the evil one are experienced by all the saints all over the world. The mistreatment of a sinful world all of the saints have known. The suffering of sickness and disease, the strife that so often makes life ugly. Your brothers and sisters all around you and all around the world, they understand, they know, they're going through the same things. And just as God is preserving every one of them, just as God has promised that not one of them will be snatched away from His hand, so He has promised you. And together, this is key, together we resist. See, not one of you was made to be self-sufficient. We humble ourselves under God, keeping our eyes on Him, and we do so as a united whole, as a body of which Christ is the head. If we stand on our own, if we attempt to stand on our own, we have no hope. You know what I've never seen succeed? One of those barn cats successfully attack an entire flock of birds. They can't get close enough. I'm sure it's been done at some point, but I've not seen it. Because generally... If there's three or four birds there, or more, they see the cat coming. It's only when there's one that he can't look everywhere, he can't observe everything. When we're together, we're strengthened, we're encouraged, and we're able to build one another up. When one is brought low through depression or anxiety, others are able to bring the promises of God that are so encouraging and minister to that one who has been brought low. When one has been hurt by the sins that he has committed, others are able to restore him gently in love using the assurance of Christ's gospel. But we must resist the devil together. Otherwise, we'll fall prey to that wicked predator who wants nothing more than either to destroy us or at least to render us useless. Distraction is deadly. We must not take our eyes off of Christ and we must not forget that we are surrounded by the saints. If you would persevere in resisting the devil, keep your eyes on God, remember the power of Christ, pray for the power of the Holy Spirit 
and do so together as the people of God, as the body of Christ. And as you do, don't forget to look forward at what soon will come. Because the sin-filled brokenness of this world, it all has an expiration date. And soon, soon all of that struggle will be behind us. That's an encouragement we need to remember, especially when we're in the midst of it. When the, the sun disappears and the clouds come down low, when it seems like we just can't go on, no, remember what's coming. And rest in the promise of ultimate perfection. That's the last thing we see here. We rest in the promise of ultimate perfection. Now verse 10. You'll see that our pew Bible renders it as a prayer. Other translations render it as a promise, an assertion. The reason for that is because there's a few places in the manuscripts of the, the Bible. We're not sure. Was it this word or that word? This letter or that letter? In this case, the four verbs here, we're not sure whether it was an A or an E. And that slightly changes the way you say the verb. You know what? It doesn't matter. That's the, the glorious thing about how God has preserved His Word. The few places where we're not quite sure exactly how to translate the Word are so minuscule that they don't change the meaning at all. Whether Peter was praying for, for a prayer that he absolutely knew, judging by what else he wrote, would be answered in the affirmative, or whether he was stating an affirmation about what he knew was coming. The meaning is the same. This is the future for which we hope, the future in which we trust. As Peter drew this letter to a close, he wanted us to be clear about where our focus must be. Surrounded by the brokenness of this world, by the pain of our suffering, by the, the disappointment that we so often experience, where do we find our hope, our joy, our strength? The answer is always, always, always in the God of all grace. He is the one who is defined by His mercy. Remember how Micah declared Him. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It is in this God that we trust. It is in Him that we rest. And we look forward to what He has promised to do to us, which is summarized in four things here. He has promised to perfect us. We're not perfect yet, right? Oh no, we fall very far short. Every day we find those sins creeping up on us. We find those failures pouring forth from us. We find that we say things to somebody else and we say it far too harshly. We allow thoughts to dwell in our minds that should never have entered in the first place. But the day is coming soon when all of that will be behind us. We will be perfected. We will be as sinful and pure as Christ, or sinless and pure as Christ was sinless for us. He has promised to perfect us and to establish us. To establish, to make steadfast and firm. We will not be blown about by every whim and temptation that might be blown against us by the evil one. There will be no more influence of the evil one and we will be made firm, steadfast, unmoving in our conviction of Christ. 
He has promised to strengthen us. All the strength that we will need for all of eternity, He will impute or He will impart to us. So that never will we be without hope, without strength, without ability. And He will settle us. That speaks of putting a foundation down. Our foundation is not what we lay. It's what the Lord has laid for us. The foundation of Christ. The foundation of all that He has done and accomplished for us. And that foundation will never be moved. God in His mercy will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And therefore no one can move us from Him. He promised us in John 10, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And in Philippians we're told, what He has begun, He will surely complete. We can be confident in that. We can be confident that He is preserving us, He is keeping us for that inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the light of that reality, that coming promise, there is nothing we need to fear. There is no worry that needs to afflict us. There is no sorrow that that can dim our joy. Today already, we know the blessing of seeing the first fruits of His work in us. You all have seen, if you are in Christ, you all have seen the transformation that He is beginning to work within you. And oh so soon, you will see it all brought to completion as He makes in you the character of Christ to flourish. And then you, we, We'll have the privilege of spending all eternity giving Him the glory that He deserves. We'll do so through our confession. We'll do so through our singing. We'll do so through every gift that He has entrusted to us. In all of the glorious variety of the gifts that He has entrusted to us, we will use all of those with utter and perfect perfection. in order to give Him glory, in order to magnify His grace. Today we live in a world filled with struggle and strife and temptation and distraction. But brothers and sisters, we must not, must not, must not allow ourselves to be distracted from Him. Instead, daily, we must rely on God for His loving power. That's what gets us through. That's what allows us to overcome those struggles. We must resist the devil by constant perseverance, always being watchful and together resisting the evil one. And we must rest in the promise of ultimate perfection that very soon is coming. That very soon we will see not only in ourselves but in all of the saints that together we might glorify God. As we wait for that day, let us keep our eyes on the Lord together and let us give Him the glory that He alone deserves. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, You are so good to us. Your, Your mercy extends higher than the heavens and wider than the sea. May You be glorified in this Your people as You teach us to to trust in You and You alone, humbling ourselves under Your mighty hand, as You teach us to resist the evil one, being watchful for His schemes. 
And as you teach us to rest in and to to glory in the promise of perfection that soon will descend upon us. May you lift us up and sustain us each and every one. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.